Welcome to the Higher Leading Podcast, recorded in the tranquil setting of Serenity Acres in Miami County, Ohio. I'm your host, Jay Meyer. This is the leadership podcast that focuses on the key traits of those who lead their lives and others to the beat of higher calling. Higher leaders are purpose-driven. Higher leaders are people-builders. Higher leaders make the world and those around them better. Our guest this week, Dr. Edmund Moore, co-chair of Parity Inc. in Dayton, Ohio, definitely exemplifies what it means to be a higher leader. Edmund Moore, how are we doing, my friend? Oh, doing great. It's a beautiful day. Happy New Year. Yeah, Happy New Year to you. I'm really excited about our time together today and to give the listeners a little bit of background. Our paths crossed not quite a year ago. There's an initiative that we're involved in in the city of Dayton that is helping minority Black-led nonprofits and nonprofits that affect the African-American population in the Dayton region. And Edmund is just one of these guys that you walk into a room and even though you don't say a word, you feel his presence. And that's why I'm excited about this opportunity for him to share a little bit about himself and how he goes about conducting his business of life. So Edmund, first off, you and I talked a few weeks ago and you told me that, you know, you're an engineer at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base, a civilian engineer at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. But you were born, I believe, and raised in Georgia. And I'm always intrigued by people's journey. So could you just take us on that journey of when you started this journey to today? I was actually born in Noonan, Georgia. And uh, it's a town about 40 miles southwest of Atlanta on I-85. And my parents, after the first year, moved us to LaGrange, Georgia, where I grew up before I left to go to college and uh, start my life's journey. And both my parents were educators. My mother was a middle school teacher, an elementary to middle school teacher. My dad was an educator as well, teacher, coach, counselor, and he eventually even went to the rank of uh, assistant principal. And he got a finally got to be a principal at a school. And we had an arsonist actually burn the school down before he could actually go into it. That was just some of the uh, climate back in the South. Now, wait a minute. Tell me again. What happened? I was actually a white guy that actually set the school on fire, burnt the whole school down. They, he was sitting on the porch across the street watching it burn down. Oh my So my Lord. dad actually never got to be the principal of that school for the term. Oh my. Burned down. When was that? Ooh, that's a good question. It would have been in the 70s, probably wow. mid-70s. So it was still going on then. Right. So... And my dad was from a little town in Ufall, Alabama. My mother was from Elizabeth City, North Carolina. They both were HBCU graduates. And one of the interesting things about my dad, with the school system back then, Georgia did not allow African-Americans to go to college in Georgia. So they couldn't get into the University of Georgia or those other, other, other state schools. But the state of Georgia would actually pay for them to go to schools like Yale or Harvard or Brown. And so my parents and Mr. Green, who lives across the street, they got better educations than their white colleagues in Georgia because they got to go take class in the school where they had the actual instructors who wrote the books that they were learning from. So that was one of the, the interesting things about uh, growing up back then. And it's just unbelievable. 
you have to wonder what the thinking was. Uh, the thinking was just backwards. It was just uh, it was racist thinking and they separation. They want to keep everything segregated and they didn't want the uh, blacks in the schools. And your parents go off and get great educations. And, they, oh, and yeah. they, then they obviously made the most of it. So go ahead. Go on. Yeah. One of my, one of my dad's favorite sayings was he said students are being discriminated against in school every day because a lot of the principals and administrators don't know what they should be doing. So left from there, so I thought I was a pretty good student. The parents who were educators, you know, I, I would get to grade my mother's papers, have a great paper. So I got that experience looking at other students work while I was growing up. My older brother was five years older. That's George Jr. He was a junior. And he ended up going to college in Tuskegee. And after I graduated, so when I was in high school, I was in the band. I played football for one year. And I, I realized football ain't for me. <laughs> <laughs> did a lot of, I ran cross country, did track, most of the distance races. Uh, was in Leo clubs, other clubs, and was in the uh, advanced classes at the school. And my worst subject was physics. And so and I always was, a, I'm always a person of challenges. So when I decided to go to college, I decided to major in physics. <laughs> and that's what I, so that's what I majored in to give myself a challenge. So I, I went to Florida and the University in Tallahassee, Florida, and I majored in physics. And my goal was to be a medical doctor, but I realized I don't like the sight of blood. So, <laughs> so I changed that. And you take so much math when you're taking physics that I said I might as well take the additional five or six course and get a math degree. So in four years, I got a math degree and a physics degree from FAMU. But during the summers, I interned. So I work, I had an opportunity to work at Fermi Labs, National Accelerated Laboratory, that's Heinegger Physics in Batavia, Illinois. And the year after that, I, I worked at Bell Laboratories, Murray Hills, New Jersey branch, stayed on the campus of Rutgers in Piscataway, New Jersey. And that's when I found about this new field called material science and engineering. I'd never heard of that before. So when I graduated, though, from FAMU, I had a decision to make. So I applied to college at Howard University, Stanford, and MIT. And I applied in physics and material science engineering. I only got accepted in two of the schools. At Howard, I got accepted into physics. At MIT, I got accepted in material science engineering. And then I had to make a decision. And I decided to go into material science engineering. And so that's what got me to MIT. Got my degree from there. And I, my advisor actually died on me in my first year. Mm. And I was told to wait till the end of the term and then pick another advisor. And the advisor I wanted to pick, he said, you need to take these uh, year undergrad courses and then you could then I would pick you up. And I was like, no, I'm not about to do that. So instead, what I did was I picked the uh, lesser two evils from advisors. And my options were, do you like to be flogged or do you like to be whipped? That was the choice of between the two. <laughs> oh, my. And I said, well, what's flogged? <laughs> <laughs> and they said, oh, that's, that's when they, they grab both your hands and you tie your hands together, your legs together, and they pull you up on the ship while it's at sea. <laughs> Jeez, man. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, so I did manage to get out of MIT, and I moved down to a warmer climate to the University of Florida. And that's why I got my degrees in material science engineering there. They made me get a master's degree again. They went to something in my coursework. And I got a doctor degree there. And while I was in school there, 
friend of mine that worked at, at Bell Labs, which was now Lucid Technologies, said, hey, let's go hang out at the Nesbit Conference in Orlando. He said, I got you. And so I went to hang out with him and they tried to get me into the NSBE, which is the National Society of Black Engineers Conference. And the uh, women working in front of the conference were from the University of Florida. They knew I hadn't paid. They wouldn't let me in. <laughs> now, now, what was that? They would not let me in because they knew I had not paid. So the oh. women in the chapter at the <laughs> University of Florida, where I was a graduate student, they would not let me in because they knew I hadn't paid. So I went around. I smelled some food, went around to the back. And they had a career fair going on with food. And I'm walking around in jeans and a T-shirt. And one of the tables was the Air Force. And they said, you need money to go to graduate school. I said, sure, I can always use money to go to graduate school. And they had this program called the Palace Night Program. And I applied for it, got accepted into it. And I assume it was a minority program, but it wasn't. It was a program open to everyone. It was the only way the government could hire at that time. And so I got read into the Air Force as a civilian, and I was stationed at the University of Florida for my last two years of graduate school. And upon graduation, I got promoted uh, while I was there the first year, and then I was I got promoted again once I graduated. And then I moved to, uh, that's how I got to Dayton, Ohio. Wow. <laughs> wow. You know, Edmund, I got to ask you this question, because this is where my mind was going as you're telling me this story of your journey, two things came to mind. And I see this in you today. First is your parents. They obviously did everything they could to set you up on a journey, a successful journey that's still going on today. But the fact that you're African-American, there had to be uh, roadblocks and challenges for you personally along the way. I mean, you know, your parents can do all they can to make you appreciate education and what it can do for you and try to instill good values in you. Can you think of any of the challenges that you had along the way that was basically because of your color? Yeah, I had some challenges at, at, at particularly at MIT. When I went to grad school at MIT, I was the only African-American in the, in the graduate program there. And I couldn't get in a study group. No one would study with me or that kind of thing. And there was a rumor going around that I already had a master's degree. So people look at me at this competition that had this advantage on them, and they weren't trying to do anything to help me. So that's been a reoccurring theme in life. Even, even in my work life, I've had rumors about me, about things that were not true, that negatively impacted me. Hmm. That you had to deal with. Yeah. And they were based on race. One example, while I was working, I was supporting a program with historical black college universities at work. And the rumor was, that's all I do. When I had a full time job uh, running one of the most complex contracts on the base, that was my full time job. The historical black college university stuff was, was an additional duty. And I was doing research as well. Mm-hmm. But that was the word that was going around that I found out about after the fact. Yeah. That's the thing is, I mean, I, I view you as a brilliant person. You wouldn't be doing what you're doing today if you weren't really, really intelligent. And for some people, I don't think they realize that, you know, with brilliance comes a person that's usually driven, that can do more than one thing really well. And that's what I'm reminded of when you talk about that, that there's just somebody's making an assumption, there's no way you can do both things well. But, you know, your life journey proven to me, man, you can do just about anything, you know, and we'll get into some of this 
some other things later that really jumped out at me with our conversations. And what I want to do now is talk about you, Edmund Moore, the author. Okay. You've written four books. Is that right? Five if you count a dissertation. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and uh, a couple of the books really struck my interest in, but the one that really jumped out at me is your book. It's called With a Father's Love, 52 Weekly Letters to My Beloved Daughters. And I read the majority of that book. And I mean, it's just full of wisdom for anyone. You know, I know you wrote it for your daughters, but anyone trying to live their best life to be their best version of themselves. What prompted you to write this book for your daughters? My uh, wife of 15 years had filed for divorce. And just knowing how divorce proceedings go, you never know if you're going to lose custody of your children or that kind of thing. So one of the things I decided I was going to do is I was going to write my daughter's letters about who I was. So I'll write them a little tidbit about something about life, the helping them with life. I'll write something about me personally so they'll get a little bit about personally. And then I'll write a reflection. That was typically the way I wrote the uh, letters to them. And so I did that for 52 weeks. I wrote them a letter, kept coming up with topics. And my oldest daughter, you know, she really didn't say a whole lot about them. And my youngest daughter said afterwards, I should write more. (laughs) So. You know, children are different. Yeah. You know, the thing that it reminded me of is like, I think George Washington, Ben Franklin, they each had their own handbooks of really how to live and and Mm -hmm. how to live a life of character. And you're telling your daughters these various situations they may encounter, and this is how they need to handle it. But one thing that kept ringing throughout this entire book is your faith. You know, and you you talk to your daughters in a way that it's not like you were stuffing God down their throat, but it was really a matter of fact. And could you give us a little bit, uh, Edmund, I mean, this podcast is called The Higher Leading Podcast, and I talk to people who I believe lead their lives and others to the beat of a higher calling. And I know you're a man of faith. And where did that start? I mean, as a child, and then we all have that moment. At least I think we do, where it's like, yeah, this is real. Jesus is real, you know. And can you share a little bit about that? In LaGrange, Georgia, we were members of a church called Warren Temple United Methodist Church. And I would go to Sunday school there. And I know my teacher was Mr. Willie Pritchett. He was a World War II paratrooper. Oh, wow. <laughs> and he'd always say, I'm going to beat the bark off of you when you'd act up. But that's why I would ask a lot of questions while they were teaching the uh, Bible studies and that kind of thing. So I think I joined church probably in my teens there. And, you know, you do the church thing, you go with your parents and that kind of thing. And But then when I got to college, it was like, okay, I'm putting this behind me. <laughs> yep. So I went to college and just started acting wild like everybody else did in Florida. But you never forget the lessons learned from your faith. So I really came back. You know, I never left it or God never left me, but I really came back. I started going to church and living a better life when I got down to Florida the second time. I started teaching Sunday school, adults, Sunday school classes. I was actually a single person teaching a marriage class, which is interesting. (laughs) (laughs) 
And I just kept going from there. And when I moved to Dayton, I uh, found the Mega Baptist Church, going to a few churches. And I just continued my walk with God. Are you on the board of Omega Baptist or aren't you involved? I was a trustee on the board of Omega Baptist probably about eight to 10 years ago when good Reverend Dr. Darrell Ward was the pastor. Mm -hmm. And I did that for a few years. And then I I stepped back as a trustee, but focused more on family and Mm -hmm. that type of thing. Mm -hmm. And the Omega Baptist Church in Dayton, they've done some amazing things. I mean, the, the latest is the Hope Center that was built, gosh, just about a year or so ago. But Omega Baptist has really been active. The Northwest side of Dayton, which for years was depressed. And we're not going to get into all that today, but it's so cool seeing the revival. And people like Edmund, I've observed there's just a lot of great leaders involved in that movement. So So I don't know how often you've gone through the neighborhoods around there. But that used to be a Jewish community. I did and not know that. There are a lot of mansions in, oh, that, yes. in, that, yeah. in, that, in the neighborhood. The doctors live there, the judges live there, and the uh, site of the church is a Jewish synagogue. So we actually do service with them once a year. Oh, so wow. our pastor will go and do a sermon at a Jewish synagogue, and that rabbi and cantor will come and do a service at our church. So wow. we still have that tie. And you're right. I mean, it is the homes there are beautiful and there's lots of hope being infused mm-hmm. to it in, into that area right now, which is really great. It's one of the things about, you know, I live about a half hour north of Dayton, farm community, Covington, Ohio. Mm-hmm. But I have always just loved the city of Dayton. And I don't know. I've always been intrigued with like the inventors and Kettering and John Patterson and NCR and then right Dun- Lawrence Dunbar, you know? And the Wright brothers. And the Wright brothers. Yeah, yeah. How can I forget them? And they and were classmates. Lawrence Dunbar and the Wright brothers? Yeah, his classmates, one of the Wright brothers, yes. Isn't that amazing, Edmund, that mm-hmm. right here in Dayton, Ohio, there's a bike path that I travel a lot that goes through the city down along the Miami River, and they put a brand new bridge in a few years ago. Well, actually, it finally was active open this this summer but there's quotes from lawrence dunbar on the walls mm-hmm. as you're riding on this beautiful bike path it's like you know the heritage it's it's truly remarkable and that leads me to really how you and i ended up first meeting with this initiative that's going on through the dayton foundation and the matil family foundation edmund you are the is it the co-chair of the board for parody is that right or are you the co- I'm a co-chair of the parody ink board parody yes. ink board so tell us a little bit about parody who you are what you do and if you wouldn't mind i believe parody was found about 1989 when john morsey and some other community leaders lewis charity it's charity's last name charity early and some other leaders met and they convened the leaders from dayton to find out what the problems were in the area. And they had uh, over 20 of them. And then they dropped those down to a few they could work on. The five areas that Parity Inc. is now focused on are education, health, economic development, community development, and public policy. And so we've really uh, had a change of leadership. We refreshed our board. We brought in a new, basically, executive director. 
even though we have a different name for her. And so we're just moving along and got our Black Leadership Development Program is, is underway, as well as we're getting ready to do our top fundraiser on February 16th, which is the annual Top 10 African-American Males Awards Lunch. All those are coming up. And once again, you do all this in addition to your job, right? You, you, uh, yes. you, you give of yourself a lot. So right now I'm working as a materials and manufacturing liaison for my organization in the area of aerospace technologies. And I picked up a side job about almost two years ago. I'm the Dayton District Combined Federal Campaign Chair. So what does that entail? So that additional duty entails that I'm trying to get the 31,000 employees, military, civilian and contract employees that donate to charities, combined federal campaign charities, as well as the 20 federal agencies in the nine surrounding counties, as well as all the retirees to donate. So that's what the job entails. And one of the things I found out about it recently was we were not communicating so I did a compression planning session and brought together some of the players to figure on how we should move forward. And that's what I'm in the process of doing now. Wow. Where did this passion come from? Edmund? Was it just born in you? I mean, as far as to be a servant leader like you are? Probably watching my parents. My parents always were active in the community. My father and mother, well, they both did. My dad was in a fraternity that gave back to the community. My mother was in a, in a sorority that did likewise. But it was also involved in the church and civic organizations. So with my father being a counselor, he was always advising students on education and to go to college. There are a lot of people in, in LaGrange, Georgia, who can look back on my father and tell you how he impacted their life and changed their lives. I think he has a building named after him and a fire station named after him in LaGrange. <laughs> really? Yeah, which is unusual. LaGrange is really a, a town of about 30,000 people. Uh-huh. And it's about 50% black, about 50% white. So very wow. interesting community to grow up in. Yeah. It was also you, the first internet town in the world where everybody you, had uh, access to internet service. Everybody. Wow. Yeah. Never heard that. Do you go back there often or not? Well, my parents died about 2016. Both of them passed. Okay. Six month time frame. So my brothers, they're living in the house. So I probably get there maybe twice a year. Mm -hmm. So not very often, but I get down there a couple of times a year. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you, your parents really did a great job. Another book that you wrote, it's called Village Wisdom for Our Youth. Mm -hmm. There's a quote in there. It's your quote. And it says, ignorance is very expensive. What you don't know will kill you and set you back. And I just would really appreciate you expounding on that quote. I mean, I sort of think I know what it means, but where'd it come from? Who are you trying okay, to? So let me give you a little background on the book, Business with Value. Okay. Uh, we were doing our top our annual top 10 African-American awards luncheon. Uh-huh. And we realized that we was in the middle of a pandemic and we could not do it live. Okay. So it was like, how can we energize people to still support this fundraiser? So what I told them I would do is say I would write a book. I would collect uh, quotes of wisdom and nuggets of knowledge from the community and we'll put in a book. And then that book will be provided to those that support us. And that's so. And so I did that work with the publishing company. All proceeds go to parity. Nothing goes to me. Mm -hmm. 
And so that quote came from one of our team ministry pastors, Reverend Derek Malone. He provided that quote for the book. And so it's not my quote. Oh, but, okay. But, but what it means, though, is, is that basically ignorance is expensive. What you don't know will set you back. It can kill you. And to give you a relevant example today, every day I look at the weather app on my phone because I want to know what the weather is going to be so I can plan my day accordingly. And looking back at the storm that just happened in Buffalo about a week ago, where they got hit with probably over 10 feet of snow. Right. High winds, very cold. I would say that there were probably people that did not really look at the weather report before they left the house. And so that ignorance in itself could have resulted in them losing their life uh-huh. because they would not have been prepared. Mm-hmm. And businesses who wanted to just to get every dollar in instead of saying, hey, a bad storm is coming. We need to send people home. They didn't yeah. follow suit. So yeah. those are kind of things that can actually kill you. Mm-hmm. Uh, something that can set you back would be the uh, payday loans and playing the lottery. Mm. So a lot of people participate in those and they really don't know how they work. So the next thing they know, they are set back financially. Because they're doing that. Right. And it's, it's, it's a shame that the elected leaders in the state of Ohio have brought into the lottery and, and gambling as a place that fund the state's coffers. They should know that the side effects of people gambling and that kind of thing and the, the negative effects it has on communities. You know, Edmund, you make a great point there. And this is something I don't know if I've shared this with you before, but I'm a recovering drug addict and alcoholic. I've been getting close to 36 years of sobriety. And I understand addiction. Being an addict, I understand addiction. And I, too, shake my head. And there are people that gamble just, you know, a few dollars here and there. They might go to Vegas and have a little fun, but they have a budget. Mm-hmm. But those who have no control over it, you, you're just fueling the fire as far as I'm concerned. So we're on the same page there. I, I, I just shake my head because, like you said, it's going into state coffers and it's a lot of money, a lot of money. And having gone to school in Florida, I remember when the lottery came there and how they sold it. They said they were going to use the money for the education. But it was a bait and switch game. The budget was one hundred dollars and they put the 50 from the lottery in there and they just reduced the 50. That the state was given down to 50. It was still 100. <laughs> and then yeah. they did the same thing in Georgia. And then it came to Ohio while I was up here. And I said, oh, I see how this game's going to work. And it works out just the same. Yeah. Plus, there's a progressive tax as well. That's a good point. Yeah, it certainly is. And it's people that probably can't afford to pay that tax are paying that tax. You know, it's. It's uh, my brother's also, I think my brother's in years 17 or 18 on alcohol and drugs. Oh, really? Yeah. And one of the best boards I've had an opportunity to serve on was I got appointed to the Montgomery County Alcohol, Drug Addiction and Mental Health Services Board. Oh, Adamus. Yep. Adamus by a, a Democratic governor and a Republican governor. Wow. And, good for you. So, and I said that was one of the best ones. So we got to look at what we could do for gambling and all the various addictions, including homelessness and homelessness and everything else. Yeah, I appreciate you sharing that. I did not know that. And so, you know, if you if you've never talked to her, talk to Helen Jones Kelly. If you I don't know if you ever talked to her before, I know her, but I have not talked to her. I'm going to make a note here. Yeah, she. she I tell people she's one of the best, most innovative people <laughs> that I've ever worked with. <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, that's amazing. And you think about how our region has been hit with mm-hmm. the opioid crisis and now the fentanyl crisis and boards serving on boards. I was on the Miami County Recovery Council, which is Miami County's version of your Adamus board. And those people are just working overtime trying to, I can't say stay ahead of this problem, but just sometimes to catch up. And then the pandemic brought, I believe it brought the mental health aspect, brought light on it, even though it was, it's always been there. Yeah, it's like, wow, there's just lots of battles going on. And, and it really goes back to our faith, you know. The brain, we call it brain health. The brain uh-huh. health issues have really affected the children. And quite honestly, there are just not enough providers to go around to see everybody. It's, it's, yeah. it's a shortage. Yeah. That's one thing. When I decided to get help for my problem, it was back in the days that insurance would pay for treatment center stays. You know, I went to a treatment center for like five weeks and I had insurance, thank goodness. But then all of a sudden they started dropping that coverage, you know, mm-hmm. in the nineties. And so anyway, yeah, that's, that's, I guess that's another topic for another day with you and me. Okay. So Edmund, let's talk about you person. I understand you're a pretty good golfer. <laughs> I have a two. You have a two handicap? I have two bad hands. Oh. <laughs> 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 oh. But you no, still- I'm really, a, when I'm playing my best, I'm probably a bogey golfer. Okay. Yeah. But you have fun. You have fun. Have fun. But that's the best I'm probably going to play as a bogey golfer. That's because I'm always working and I was raising kids, and I never really had the chance. I don't get to go to their driving range. Uh, (laughs) I just go out and play. (laughs) You got practice, yeah. So what else? I mean, you're obviously in pretty good shape, and I'm assuming you have some type of exercise regimen, correct? Well, I tried to, for two years, I tried to to work out at home with some weights and some stretching bands and that kind of thing, and just not as good as the gym. So about probably about a month ago, I started going back to the gym for the first time. Okay. So that's already paying dividends. So, <laughs> yeah. You feel more energy when you do that? Oh, yeah. 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 But, you know, doing it when it's warm outside, one of the thing, beautiful things about golf is typically I will walk. So, okay. I'm getting my steps in, walking, pushing a cart. A couple of times last year, I had to carry because I've got my cart, but I was in good enough shape to do that. Mm hmm. Walking the neighborhoods, that kind of thing. I stopped cutting grass. A lot of people do cut grass. I paid someone to do that. Man. <laughs> <laughs> I did that too about ten years ago, man. I, I yeah, I get it. Yeah. You know, another question. You know, I think we all have our core values that help guide us on our daily decisions. And do you have any core values that you adhere to that you live by? If you wouldn't mind sharing. Basically, my core values, I would say, it would be to love golf with all my heart, my mind, about my strength, and to love my neighbor as myself. So mm. the other thing to that, I say, about, one thing I've learned in life is a lot of times you have to treat others the way they want to be treated. And if you can't treat them the way they want to be treated, you just have to walk away. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And Edmund, you exemplify that. You know, I mean, like I said, we've just known each other for not quite a year. And you can see your desire to love others, to understand others, to help others. And, you know, obviously, the I think the entire 
nation in the world, we all paused back in that George Floyd moment when, you know, I know for myself, when I think about this, this quote from your friend that ignorance is very expensive, what you don't know will kill you and set you back. You know, in that moment for me, a white person who never was challenged because of the color of my skin, it really made me pause and think like, man, I really don't know what's going on. Mm. And I started calling some of my African-American brothers and sisters to just say, you know, tell me about this. Cause, and, the, and these were people that never claimed to be victims or anything like that. You know what I mean? They were, they're like you, Edmund. They're, they're living their lives and no big deal. And then they started telling me stories. And it's like, oh, wow. And I never thought of that. And one of them was the daughter of uh, one of my very good friends who passed away, unfortunately, 12 years ago. And she said, you know, my dad told us when we were young that we have to learn how to live two lives. And I said, what do you mean? We can be our black selves, but in public, there's a different set of rules we have to adhere to. And he told them about like driving to work and getting pulled over for no reason at all. And this guy never shared this with me, Edmund. He never once complained. So, you know, I can't do this interview without asking you your thoughts around that whole moment in time where I, th I believe that people like myself have tried to learn more, understand more and do better. If you could just share some of your thoughts, I would appreciate it. I would say that there are people who try to understand, but then I'd say there are a lot of people who are indifferent and they have strongholds in their lives. The biggest stronghold I think that we are facing is that a lot of times if someone sees something happen of that nature, they'll say, well, obviously the person is was the person that's uh, being afflicted was doing something wrong. Mm-hmm. The police or law enforcement would not be messing with that person. They hadn't done something wrong. So mm -hmm. the benefit of doubt goes straight to the officer, no matter what they are doing. Right. And they never reflect and say, you know, I think that's a little excessive. They said, no, no, the person must have been doing something wrong. Mm -hmm. My best man basically put it as he said that a lot of times he said uh, some people will say if they stick you in the back with a knife and they pull out halfway, they're saying they're treating you better. He said, yeah, but the harm is still, the knife is still in my back. Yeah, it's halfway out, but it's still in my back. But they feel, but yep, we're treating you right now. Yeah. That's his, that was his analogy. Yeah. And if they pull it out, they don't repair the wound. <laughs> so, is it, we're equal now. Everything's fine. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. I mean, obviously, you're a man of high intelligence, and you're also, to me, a visionary with the work you've done with parody and what you're trying to do for young African-American men and leaders. But when you just sit and reflect and say, this is what needs to happen. What do you think of what needs to happen? And I'm not just talking about, you know, the law enforcement side, but, you know, just to create, you know, we have the diversity, equity, and inclusion and belonging going on in a lot of organizations today. And sometimes it looks like it's just wallpaper. It's like, yeah, we got this going on. Like you said, indifferent. And others are truly engaged and trying to embrace it. So what are your thoughts? How can we make progress? 
actually have a certificate from the University of South Florida in the diversity, equity, and inclusion. And having worked in that area on the base, what I will say is there is a subset of the population that if you ever mention the word diversity, equity, and inclusion, they shut down immediately. They are no longer in receptive mode. Mm-hmm. If you say you're going to do uh, the ESG investing, they shut down. They don't want to hear more. Mm-hmm. So certain segments of the population don't want to hear about it. And you can't reach someone if they're not willing to listen or even share. Right. And, and, and too often that's the case. So I think that's the biggest barrier. Uh-huh. Even, if you bring, even if you bring it to issues in the community, one of the things I went to a meeting last week and found out that 35 to 40 percent of the students in the Dayton public schools are homeless. 35 to 40 percent. No, 35 to 40 percent of the students in the Dayton public schools are homeless. So I shared that tidbit with the members of my Sunday school class. The response came back. How do you define homeless? I'm like, you've got to be kidding me. <laughs> you, <laughs> that's the question. How do you define homeless? <laughs> oh, man. Yeah. So if you start and then in talking to other people, they start blaming the children. They start blaming the parents. And I'm saying, wow, I'm like, we're sitting here. We have families that care for us. We have good education. We have good jobs. We have housing, food, everything. But now we're slamming the children for this, for the sins that you can, if you want to call it, the sins of their parents. Or because their parents went in a position to take care of them. And mm-hmm. I was I was trying to explain, like, if I'm homeless, my priority is trying to get shelter, trying to get food. Mm-hmm. It may not necessarily be that the first thing on my mind is getting my kid to school. I right. Said, right. That was a roadblock. You couldn't, there was certain people you couldn't have a discussion with. And I'm like, wow, no wonder we can't solve these types of problems. Yeah. So what I'm hearing you say, and until people are willing to listen, you know, lay down their prejudices, lay down their perceptions and say, okay, I'm just going to open my mind and listen. It's going to be hard to make progress. Right. Open our mind, open our heart and say, hey, okay. Maybe I was in this situation in the past. I'm out of it now. But maybe the way I got out of it, it's not open to them now. So right. let's see how we can work and help resolve this situation. That's really what we need out of the community. People to say, hey, how can we make this right? Mm-hmm. Have you seen some progress, though, Edmund, since you arrived in Dayton with these various issues with race? I mean, do you think things are getting a little better? Or is there just this major barrier that until, you know, people are willing to listen and understand and open their hearts and minds, nothing's going to get better? I would say there are certain populations that get it, but there are broader populations who have probably even gone the opposite way as far as relations are concerned. Hmm. And you can probably look at the way the politics has gone with the former president and the way he was going and the way people got behind him. Mm-hmm. I will tell you one of the biggest things when I knew this country had a problem was when Osama bin Laden was killed. So I work on a military base. Mm-hmm. And I remember the day they announced that Osama bin Laden was killed. There was no celebration on the base. There was no mention of it hardly. So I'm like, wow, this is interesting. This is the person we said 
responsible for killing these people on 9-11. And this is one of the top people we're going to get. We went to war after him in Afghanistan. And now when he gets yeah. killed, there's no celebration. I'm like, wow. That happened with uh, under President Obama. And I actually had a supervisor that came to me and said, yeah, remember when President Bush killed Osama bin Laden? I'm like, that wasn't President Bush. He said, sure it was. I'm like, no. So it's... <laughs> Yeah, it's the little things like that that you say, wow. Yeah, yeah, it's amazing. You know, one thing that I feel encouraged about is like, you know, we got three kids and our oldest and youngest are out on their own. Our middle guy, Jordy, he's he's home with us. He he has disabilities. And but our oldest and youngest, Edmund, they're just how do I say this? I mean, they are big into equality. They don't view black and white or Asian or, or you know what I mean? Right. I mean, it's almost if something comes out of my mouth, that's the least bit could be called racist, which is, you know, sometimes you say something, you don't realize it's not right. You know, they'll kind of look and correct me. And so I believe the Gen Y's and the Gen Z's are being raised differently. When it comes to that, now I'm sure there's still some that are, you know, raised in a prejudiced type environment and all that. But do you see that with your daughters and the people that they hang out with and that it's just like they're more accepting of one another for however they are? My daughters, particularly my oldest daughter, was very correcting me on the, the she, the her and the various pro- pronouns. Okay. She would, she would, oh, she would jump on me if I didn't, if I didn't use the right one for someone, she'd say, dad. That person goes by this. So, yes, I see that. So there's a group that is young folks, that generation, that are growing into this. And I think they have a problem with the older generation, especially when you get people say that we're not going to sell. We're going to call you what we want to call you, this and that. And they're realizing that they don't necessarily have the power to change that. Mm-hmm. No matter how much they want to change, if they're looking at it and saying, wow, these people are, and I hope they don't tune out and stop fighting. Yeah. And I think that's probably part of the calculations by the group that wants to keep things the way it was, <laughs> All right. the way they think it should be, is that yeah. they just keep uh, beating down on the topic and and dissuade other people to keep resisting. Right. Well, I'll tell you, I mean, I'm planning on keeping this podcast going as long as I'm alive. It's like my last quarter of my life. It's like, what can I do if I can still talk, if I can still work a computer? I'm going to keep doing this podcast. And Edmund, I'm going to bring you back because we got a lot of stuff we didn't, we weren't able to talk about today. Are there any other degrees that you have that you haven't shared with me yet? It's like every <laughs> every time it's like, ah, I got a degree in this. and I have an air warfare degree at Maxwell. And I have a management and business degree out of Antioch McGregor. <laughs> oh, man. You're just made the most of your life, dude. I'm just proud to call you my friend. I'm going to have to get ready to sign off here. But, you know, I always like to do a lightning round, a set of lightning round questions with the people that I talk to. And the first one is, what would you consider your biggest success to date? My consistent walk with the Lord with a second being the birth of my children. <laughs> nice, nice. And the second one, if you could walk with anyone in history for a day, who would it be? You know, people always talk about people like Jesus and Gandhi and Martin Luther King. 
But mine, I would really like to walk with my middle-aged grandfather. When I was a child, I was young when he was alive. And I knew we would go to the farm. He had four acres and we would hang out with him, my father and my brother and I. But I was too young to appreciate any wisdom he was sharing. Uh, yeah, yeah. That's a great answer. And then last but not least, obviously, you're very passionate about building leaders and the work you do with Parity. If you could leave us with three nuggets of leadership wisdom, what would you like to share with our listeners? That's a real tough question. The first one I would say as a leadership, you should always listen and ask questions for understanding. Because we don't know, I don't know everything, we don't know everything. Second, I would say is for if you have people under you in, in, in your leadership, make sure you provide them with the right, uh, with clear guidance, the right tools, and the environment to be successful. And my last one would be trust your people to do what was asked. Like that. Good stuff, man. Well, Edmund, I sure appreciate this time that we spent together this morning. And you'll be our first, you know, I'm highlighting in February during Black History Month, African-American leaders in the Dayton area. And you're my first and you did not disappoint, brother. (laughs) (laughs) I sure appreciate you. And like I said, I'm going to have you back sometime without a doubt, because there's just so many other stories I think you could share. So thanks so much, Edmund. I appreciate your time. Being the lifelong learner that I am, I so much enjoy having conversations like I just had with Edmund and people that are well beyond my intelligence level. And it just, Edmund just has so much wisdom that he can offer the world. And he does that. He's the ultimate servant leader. He wears his heart on his sleeve. You know, we talked about some of the racial inequity that's going on. He was pretty frank and honest about that topic that people just have to change their hearts, be willing to understand, be willing to listen. And I know Evan will not give up the fight in trying to make change, positive change, take place in our communities when it comes to equality, equity, diversity. And, you know, from a personal standpoint, when I ask him about his biggest success to date, and this is no big surprise to me, he mentioned his consistent walk with God. And you can just feel that consistency when you're around Edmund. And I'm not building Edmund up to be some God or whatever. He's just a humble soul. He represents it through his walk and not his talk. And then the second part of his big success to date is the birth of his daughters, which obviously the book he wrote with a father's love, 52 weekly letters to my beloved daughters. If you get a chance, you can get on Amazon, you can order the book. I would advise you to read it because the wisdom he hands to his daughters is wisdom we can all use. I mean, it's really, really rock solid information, tidbits and nuggets of wisdom. So, you know, I am humbled that I get to talk to people like Edmund people who are purpose-driven, people who lead their lives and others to the beat of a higher calling. And as I prepare to sign off, I always sign off with my personal mission statement. And my challenge to you is to go out today and dream more, be more, and live in the light more. I'll be back 
I hope you will too.